0: Welcome to The Logbook. I'm your host, Lucas Weekly. This episode is supported by you, the listeners, through Patreon. Head over to thelogbookpodcast.com for more information. In this episode, we listen to an adventure to find the perfect airplane. We hear how it went and what happened along the way.
1: After being in a flying club in New Hampshire for 12 or 15 years and procrastinating most of the time about uh, having my own plane, trying to choose what kind of a plane I would buy. And like a little child, I wanted a plane that did everything. And of course, there is no such a thing. And I had reluctantly uh, uh, looked around and being dissatisfied with everything, I finally decided I got to do something. I need the first one, knowing that there would be others later. So I decided I wanted something that would go fast and do it cheap. Now, everybody wants that. But I thought, well, I'll look around and see what there is. And a friend of mine had a Cassette Formula One racer that was, uh, I think it was a Cassette M3 or 3M, I don't recall. And he let me sit in it. And I loved it. I would never even heard it run, but I thought, this is good. I want one of these. I had seen them before at Oshkosh, and I've seen them race at Reno. So I I started looking, and I found a man that had built 10 of them, and he published a, a Cassette Enthusiast newsletter and, and distributed it for free. So I called him, And it seems he was in the process of building another one. It was in his basement. And uh, I I thought, well, would you sell it? He says, oh, sure. So I decided I'd go look at it. So during school vacation in uh, December, when we had two weeks off for Christmas, I I was teaching at the time, I went to his home in Kansas City and uh, we went downstairs and I watched him make a few parts. He was working on the panel. The frame was already powder coated and it looked beautiful. And I thought I was going to be able to buy that the beautiful red airplane. And I, we sat around that evening talking about it and uh, we whiled away the hours into the evening. And during the evening, he got a phone call from somewhere and he hung up the phone. And he had this kind of long look on his face and it's It's now approaching midnight. And I asked him, what happened? And he told me that he had made an offer to buy the rights to the owl racer, which is a very close in size uh, approximation of the the Cassette. And he never thought it would be accepted. And the phone call he got was they had accepted his offer. And he said to me, now I got to somehow come up with the money. And so we, <laughs> we chatted for a little while. He said, I think I'm going to have to sell Quicksilver. That's the one that he was flying at the time. So I bought it. Instead of the red one in the basement, I now was going to buy one that was up and flying. And uh, the next day, we went to the airport and went in the hangar and, and he uh, let me look at it. It was an ugly day. the The weather was really bad, raining and low ceilings. But he let me taxi it down the runway and back. I mean, the taxiway. And I decided I would buy it, so I did. About that time, I got back on the plane and went back to New Hampshire. Uh, and I said, "Well, I'll I'll come get this uh, later in the spring, unless you can find someone to fly it out." Well, there was a a a bunch of these uh, cassette drivers all in a neighborhood. And I thought for sure one of these people would be willing to fly it out to me. And little by little, one at a time, they all had excuses to not make that trip. (laughs) And I thought, where's all the bravado now? (laughs) So by April, when school had another one-week spring break, I went out to Kansas City to get it. Uh, a flying buddy of mine, and uh, we we went out in a Cherokee 180. I put my my radio gear into the plane. It was a handheld, and I mounted it right where Stan had, had his. Then there was the the initial flight, which was kind of interesting. He took the plane to another airport, and I drove over there with with a friend. I don't know why he did this. Well, I do now, but at the time, I had no idea. This other airport we t- we went to had uh, a little restaurant, and here was Sunday morning, and all his flying buddies are there for pilot's breakfast. And here he comes with this new guy, me, uh, who's going to fly this airplane for the first time. Stan had flown it over there the night before. One of his friends took me up in a French tandem trainer to see if I had any tailwheel expertise. He was satisfied that I was uh, safe to fly the cassette. Stan gave me the numbers, and I got in, and I had an agreement with myself that I would make three high-speed taxis down the runway before I tried it to fly. I was very comfortable with the, the first one. But I did take all three, and it it felt pretty good. So then I took off, and the numbers worked perfectly. Lift off and climb, and I, I was still climbing. I went over to a little practice area, and everything went very smoothly until I tried to level off. And as soon as I tried to level off, I started experiencing these pilot-induced oscillations, I think they call them. That's a nice little name for you're over-controlling everything. I was not used to the very small inputs necessary for this airplane. So I push forward in order to level off, and all of a sudden I'm staring at the ground, and obviously I went too far. So uh, I pull back a little bit too much, and I'm staring at the clouds. And we went up and down, up and down, and I'm riding the straps, and then thrown into the seat. And I thought to myself, if I ever get this on the ground without breaking it, I'll never fly it again. But we came around and uh, I used the numbers he gave me.
0: Airspeeds for taking off, landing, and stalling.
1: It worked out beautifully. I made three approaches by agreement with myself, and then I landed and everything went well. Fast forward to the evening, I tried to sell it back to him. I said, this is not for me. And uh, he had already spent the money, so that was not going to work. So I decided I would have to fly it back to New Hampshire and put a smile on my face everywhere I go and till, uh, until somebody else maybe uh, felt that they couldn't live without it. And this was this was not difficult. The plane was a, a gorgeous airplane. I swear that the paint job must have weighed 75 pounds. It was all metal flake, two-tone just beautiful. Definitely a a sort of ooh and ah airplane, but not a serious racer. He even put wing tanks in it, which is not part of the original design. Each tank would hold five and a half gallons with five gallons usable. And I thought this would really make the trip home a lot easier. Until I discovered that one of the fuel caps I was not able to get off. And the other tank on the other side had a mixture of gasoline and water. And I did not have time to really purge these tanks, clean them, and so on. So I had to make the trip using only the header tank up nose. I was glad to have had time to check the capacity of the nose tank. The seller told me it holds 14 gallons. And I was able to ascertain that it was really 12. And uh, that was a good thing for me to know. So the next morning, I took off at about noon. My first stop for fuel, the uh, fuel truck was unable to fit their nozzle in my tank. They had to send the line boy downtown to buy a funnel. So I lost a little time there. The next thing I I encountered was going through St. Louis. And in order to stay away from the the big airports, every, every big city has an airport. And the easiest way to navigate in an airplane like this is to follow the interstate. And where does the interstate go? To the big cities. So I had to go around the big city and pick up the uh, correct uh, highway on the other side. But there was that, that arch, that beautiful arch in uh, St. Louis. And I desperately wanted to fly through the arch, uh, but I resisted it. At the last minute, I did not do that, thinking, well, somebody's going to take a picture of me and, and I'll be in big trouble. So I went on, and I got to Terre Haute, Indiana that night, and the radio, uh, I was having a hard time with the radio because the aircraft did not have shielded ignition, and the thing that I could hear best was the spark plugs, lots of them, and it was very difficult to discern what people were saying. I'm trying to talk to the tower, and they're not talking back, Uh, and I got very close to the airport before I finally picked up the tower, and I noticed it was my own fault. I had turned the squelch way down. And as I'm approaching the airport, there was a a, a jet fighter went right in front of me. And he was in landing mode. And I thought, oh my God, where's his wingman? Because they, they always fly in pairs. And I never did see him. But the tower uh, saw all of us. Tower said to me just just turn around here and and take this cross runway. Stop before you reach the intersection. You'll be fine. I told the tower I was having a little brake trouble. Maybe I couldn't stop by the intersection. So I just uh, did a 360 out there until things were clear. And as it was, that turned out to be a good decision because I went through the intersection doing at least 40 miles an hour. That evening, I rented a hangar and the, uh, took the wheel pants off, took the wheels off, and scuffed up the brakes to see if I could find uh, a better braking um, for the rest of the trip home. The next day was beautiful. Not a cloud in the sky. Things went well. Fly for a while, refuel. Fly for a while, refuel. And then taking a, following a highway from Columbus, Ohio, northward towards Cleveland, there's one cloud in the whole sky. And it's right over the road I'm following. The man that sold me this told me to don't fly it in the heavy rain because it will destroy this wooden propeller. Light rain, he said, you can get away with. And sure enough, I got under that cloud and it was raining lightly. And it was light enough rain that I thought I had no problem. And it was the third week in April and uh, I was flying with the chart in my lap and my finger on the highway that I'm following in my lap, and I would look at the chart and then look out the window, look at the chart, then look out the window, and so on. One of these cycles, I looked at the chart, and when I looked up, the window, the windshield was, was covered with ice. I looked out, and the wings were collecting ice. There was ice collecting on the fuel vents and on the pitot tube, and it happened very quickly, like clear ice will do. And I contemplated, uh, it's five miles more to the next airport, or it's fifteen miles back to the last one I passed. Uh, so I decided I would go back the fifteen miles, not knowing what is ahead of me. So I went back to that airport carrying all this ice. It wasn't, it was not uh, warm enough to sublimate. So uh, I, I, I had to make a landing in an airplane that was fast and, and, and a little bit skitterish, very sensitive. It's my first real flight in this thing. It's a strange new airplane to me. And all, on top of all this, I have a windshield covered with ice. It was an interesting time. So I got it on the ground, and I went into the FBO, and I waited for three hours, and the temperature went up three degrees, enough to melt everything. And I came out and continued on my way. This <clears throat> this day, uh, I, I lost those three hours. So I spent the night in, uh, I think it was Dunkirk, on the southern shore of Lake Erie. And the next morning, I went to the FBO. and There was a, 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 a weather a weather service station there on the field. I went in there and, and asked... Uh, What what am I in for? It was snowing at the time, and it already had three inches on the ground. The weatherman said, well, listen, this this is not bad. You just keep going east. When you get over to Albany and Schenectady area, it clears right up. And getting to those places was pretty easy. You just follow the New York State Thruway and the canal. When I got to Schenectady, however, contrary to the forecast, the weather got worse instead of better. And now I crossed the Hudson River, and uh, I, I had to choose one of these little two-lane roads, not knowing for sure which one was the, I'm looking for Route 7. <laughs> and, and I know that that will take me over to southern Vermont. And I find myself in a valley surrounded by three mountains, and I cannot see the tops of any of the mountains for the clouds. It's, the ceilings were low. About that time, I'm trying desperately to identify the town below me. And I'm trying to make it be a city that it wasn't. And One of these, and I climbed up a little bit to get a different perspective of this area. And all of a sudden, I got a windshield full of ice again. And here I am over someplace I don't even know. I just know that up one of these valleys... Is Bennington, and I know Bennington has an airstrip, but I didn't know which valley to go up. Well, with this new load of ice, not seeing the mountaintops, not knowing which way to go up the valleys, I decided, well, as much as I hate to, I'm going to put this thing down right here in somebody's cow pasture or large backyard or something, but I'm not going to leave this town and not know where I'm going. I'd rather crash where people are going to hear me and see me. So I descended. And I got down to maybe eleven, twelve hundred 1,200 feet above ground, and the ice started to dissipate a little bit. But better than that, I saw the runway. I saw the Bennington Tower. I had been over Bennington all the time and didn't recognize it. I got low enough to see the Bennington Tower, and the runway is less than a mile from the tower. So I went into Bennington. I I, uh, rented a hangar for the night. And I rented a car, and just about the time I was leaving, we had this thunder snow. I'd never seen it before, but it's a snowstorm with lightning and thunder. And that's what I would have been flying in had I continued on past Bennington. So I was eternally grateful for that. So I, I drove home with the car, and uh, I came back the next day. It was a beautiful day, and got the plane. <clears throat> and the last Piece of the trip home was uneventful, and I finally had it nestled in the the hangar back at Keene, New Hampshire. The irony of this thing to me was, here's a plane that's capable of getting from Kansas City back to uh, southern New Hampshire easily in one day, and it took me three days because of these little obstacles of of newness, and uh, it was a learning expedition. There's no two ways about that. I proceeded to have fun with that airplane for a year and a half. I put maybe 100, 125 hours on it, did some light aerobatics, did a couple of air shows, had a lot of fun, and then I traded it straight across for a, for a Piper Pacer that had been reconverted. It was a PA-22-20, had been born as a Tri-Pacer, and then reconverted back to a Pacer, and that was a fun airplane also. So my adventure into I want to go fast and do it cheap was a very educational thing. And it did go fast. I could cruise at 170, 180 miles an hour on five gallons an hour. It was great. But there's always the balance. I got to go fast. I got to do it cheap. On the other side of the coin is there was no electrical system. You had to hand prop it. The radio was battery powered. There was no navigation equipment, so you followed roads. <laughs> it was it was rather small. Wingtip to wingtip was fourteen feet, and the cockpit was eighteen inches wide. And it had <coughs> had unusual uh, interior in that there was two sticks. Uh, two sticks, and uh, one was slightly shorter than the other. And that was for the flapperons. It's the only plane I've ever owned with flapperons, and uh, it, it made the thing capable of landing a lot slower than, than originally intended. The guy I bought it from said, don't use those. Uh, they make it tip forward. And I thought to myself, well, that doesn't sound all that abnormal to me. So I used them. I cleaned them up and used them and I could drop my approach speed by 10 miles, 10 miles an hour, which made a big difference. <clears throat> it, was, uh, it was very fast, and my pattern was um, a downwind leg, would be about 100, and turning base about 90, come over the fence about 80, anything less than 80, and it would kind of fall out of the air. So I got pretty good with it over a year and a half. I really had a lot of fun. And it was the beginning of a a string of ownerships that are all memorable.
0: Sky Storms, yes, that's his name, did eventually sell his Cassette 3M for a more practical airplane, but he said that he never regretted owning it. Today, he flies at his local airfield in a 1956 Cessna 172 It is co-owned by him and some of his flying buddies, and they take the plane on trips all around Central Florida. Sky also volunteers his spare time at the Marion Correctional Institution, teaching reformed inmates how to present themselves and be successful in the job market. Sky also wrote a book entitled Job the Search is On, which is a step-by-step guide in becoming as successful as you can when searching for a job. You can find more information about him and his book at skystormsbooks.com. More information and pictures related to the story can be found in the article at thelogbookpodcast.com. This episode was supported directly by your donations. If you enjoy the show, you can support its production by becoming a patron. Through Patreon, you set a donation level that is given every time a new episode is released. And you can always set a monthly limit so you don't go over your budget. Depending on the amount donated, you are granted access to different rewards that are as simple as hearing a sneak preview to the next episode all the way up to exclusive content that didn't make it into the show. Any amount is helpful, and the more that's donated, the more the show can improve. Head over to our website, thelogbookpodcast.com, and click on the Patreon banner at the side of the page to start supporting. If you have a story about anything in aviation, we would love to hear it, and it may even become an episode of The Logbook. You can send us an email by using the contact page on our website. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you come back for the next entry in The Logbook.